welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. This is the Thursday Deep Dive Show. We're talking five below today. It is a retailer I think a lot of people know about in the Pacific Northwest where Ryan and I are. We don't have any stores, so I'm actually going to ask Ian, who's joining us. You got any five belows down in the uh, Arizona area? You ever been to one? Yep, so we do have some five belows. I went to the one the first time um, about a year ago. I was actually looking for a mask. And uh, I walked in, and I'd never been in. My sisters had talked about him. I was like, wow, there are a lot of good deals here. And so that's kind of how it first popped up on my radar and part of the reason we're talking about it today. But they're kind of, they've started popping up everywhere in Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it. They're trying to grow out to basically everywhere in the United States, but we're going to oh, actually wait. We're going to talk pitch. five below. We got to do sales pitch. Uh, who wants to do it? Ryan, you were. You yeah, were I think I am probably the best salesman. So, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, it's code CCM at go to seveninvesting.com. They have, if you are unfamiliar with seven investing, they have seven great recommendations every month uh, with good analysis. We love the advisors over there um, and you can use code CCM to get $10 off. So $7 for your first month. It's, it's a price of coffee. But it's yeah. gonna, you know, it's gonna afford you many coffees in the future. Maybe two. I think we're thinking about coffee in New York. Seven bucks? No, a Starbucks. Starbucks coffee, a fancy coffee. You can get. It'll be seven bucks. Wow. All right. Well, not, maybe not I'm sure. signing with. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm signing with Barbara Corker. Maybe we get a stop. Uh, <laughs> maybe that will make you a millionaire someday. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, do you uh, do you want to get into what Five Below does? Yeah. So the first line on their investor relations page says Five Below is a leading high growth value retailer for tweens, teens, and beyond, offering trend right, high quality products with extreme one dollar to five dollar value, plus some incredible finds that go beyond five dollars. So. They're a lot like a dollar store, um, but they're a little more upscale. I haven't been in one, so maybe Ian can attest to that, but they sell items across eight categories. So it's style, room, sports, tech, create. I double typed create, uh, party, candy, and now. Now, uh, what's that? What's like probably just relevant trendy stuff. Oh, uh, just kind of the other. Yeah. Time. And, okay. uh, Basically, you're getting all this stuff for below $5 or above a dollar. So it's really like cheap value kind of little handy things. Um, and their goal is to make it an entertaining, cheap experience. They try to change out the inventory constantly to keep up with trends. That's why they say trend right. Um, and this hopefully keeps people coming back so they never know what they'll find. At the end of this year, they had 1,020 locations in 38 states. As we mentioned earlier, there are none really in the yeah. Pacific Northwest. You got to pick up the slack there. Come on, five below. And their, uh, their new store models are about 9,000 square feet. So if you're trying to gauge how big that would be, we've talked about Sprouts Farmers Market on here before. That's about 26,000 square feet. Um, so it's a little, it's about a third of the size of that. Um, Which are small. Sprouts was the perfect example. Yeah, but, I mean, they're small, small stores. They're not, right. they're way smaller than a grocery store. Like Walmart 
is a hundred thousand plus square feet. So think about it that way. And they're typically yeah. centered in like high traffic areas. So big shopping center, stuff like that. And as for the supply chain, five below has about a thousand vendors with 60% of the materials being sourced domestically. No vendor makes up more than 5% of their purchases and there are no long-term vendor agreements. So it's, and none of them are exclusive either. Um, and it, supply chain is a huge deal for a value retailer like this. If they can't acquire the materials for cheap, then obviously economics don't make any sense. Uh, but for distribution, they have four distribution centers scattered across the US. Um, sometimes the vendors will ship directly to the stores, but usually it goes through the distribution centers. Um, and then I think they also e-commerce comes from distribution centers straight to the consumer's home. Um, but e-commerce is a very small part of the business and I'll get into the history. So there's not, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff on the early days. The first five below store was started in 2002 in the Philadelphia area by a guy named David Schlesinger and Thomas Valoy. Um, and as you might imagine, if you're starting a store called five below, uh, you probably have an interesting background. So Schlesinger, uh, had recently founded Zany Brainy and Encore Books. Um, I know some of these names name. are a little a, crazy. They have some unique names for sure for stuff they do. Yeah, and Valois was the CEO at Zany Brainy. So him and the other guy worked together uh, and then they decided to start this Five Below store in Philadelphia, which the company was originally called Cheap Holdings Incorporated, but the name changed within a year. And then Joel Anderson joined the company in 2014, and he was appointed to CEO within about six months. So I think they knew that he was talented. Um, and they introduced online selling in 2016. But yeah, within 19 years, they've grown store count 1,000x. Yeah. So, well, you're starting at one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But a thousand stores in 19 years is That's pretty, good. pretty pretty fast expansion. Yeah, and I'll hit the uh, industry and landscape. Uh, according to the 10K, there's about 63 million people in the U.S. that are ages five to 19, which is their core market. They're going after, and I, I've never been to a store, but the way they describe it, it seems like really the target market is like five to 13, uh, and they're trying to get that. So it's, I imagine, it's kind of like a you're at the mall, you're going out for shopping with your family as a kid, and you're like, all right you know, like asking your parents, hey, can we stop off for 15 minutes at this five below store? That's kind of their value proposition. Uh, management believes they have room to get to 2,500 stores in the US. So about 2.5X from here. Uh, other discount retailers would be, and really when looking at it, they kind of have a unique proposition. So it's not like they're directly competing with all these, but they sort of compete with Dollar General. They sort of compete with Dollar Tree, Big Lots, even like a CVS pharmacy, um, party stores too. I think party stores is one that probably people don't look at as much because they are kind of that, you know, for the kids' birthday parties, you'd probably go to a five below too. Um, and then Amazon, Walmart, Target, like every retailer imaginable, they're competing with those three. Total industry is estimated to be about $94 billion in 2021. And, you know, five below is going after a smaller market of that, but there's still a lot of room to room to run, I guess, in the TAM, although that's not really something people should consider. Um, Ian, do you have anything on the introduction here before we get into management? Uh, yeah, so first, just touching quickly on the competitive landscape, one number that they cite is that 46% of their visits to their stores are actually the second visit in a shopping center. So someone went to a shopping center for some other reason, and then they ended up at five below. And so they really are trying to build their model around being in good locations that they can get some of that 
kind of other traffic into their stores. And I will say, um, just having the Phoenix, uh, the Phoenix influence here, um, my experience, like you walk into the store and you have your little kind of checkout area at the front and you can see the back of the store from the front of the store and you can see both of the sides of the stores, right? It's not like some of these shopping centers or these huge things that are like really big. It seems like a, um, there seems like plenty of space there. It's not a small store, but it's also not overwhelming. You can make your way around it in about 10 minutes or something. So anyways, um, getting into management and ownership, Joel Anderson is the CEO and president, as Ryan mentioned. He was hired in 2015. Before that, he was the CEO of Walmart.com. So kind of one of those, um, like the subsidiary of Walmart, basically, and focused on the e-commerce side of it. And then before that, he worked uh, in multiple kind of executive positions at Toys R Us. And so has experience in retail, discount retail, um, children's, teens, tween retail, and so kind of a pretty, um, like a pretty good track record for someone that you're trying to get in a position like this. And it looks like the transition went really smoothly from the existing team to uh, Mr. Anderson. So one quote that he said that I think is interesting is he said, um, too many leaders focus on performance first. I believe you have got to start with people. Everything I've done when I've moved to a new company has always been about people. Sometimes it's meant changing people or encouraging current people. But in all cases, to be successful will require starting with the people. If you have the right people on the team and then passion for the customer in that order, then performance will come. So, or end quote. Um, so sometimes like we hear a lot of comments like that from management that I think um, they, it, they're like saying the right thing, but it's not actually played out. But in this case, I think it has played out. Most of the management team um, is basically from when he started. Um, if not before. And so he's kept on a couple of existing people and most of the other members in the management team came around the same time that he did. So there hasn't been a lot of turnover. He's found his team and they've really had some great success over the last couple of years. In terms of ownership, um, about 6% of the float is um, shorted. So some short interest, but nothing too insane. It's not like a GameStop situation or anything like that. Um, insider ownership is about 2%, not large, but not nothing. Um, uh, Mr. Anderson has about uh, half a percent of the company, which is about $50 million. So pretty substantial amount of um, money for him. Uh, he's getting fairly large equity grants each year, but it looks like he's selling some of those to presumably pay for his lifestyle. But uh, nothing, you know, I, I'm generally from what I can read and hear about uh, Joel Anderson, he seems like a competent guy who's really executing on the vision so far. Yeah, I like management a lot. It seems like even reading the transcripts, I don't know. It's kind of hard. Like, it's hard to describe, but when you read a transcript or even listen to it, sometimes you're like, all right, they got a fantastic grip on this business. And sometimes you're like, all right, eh. you kind of just go, meh. Him, was like, all right, this is fantastic. Yeah. And, and the other thing about it, and you mentioned the transcripts, is they give a lot of information both in their 10K and in their conference calls, giving whether it's um, guidance or they were talking about like how they plan to build some distribution centers this year and how much that's going to cost. They try and give people some really kind of clarity into the business as they see it. So um, that's always nice to see kind of makes you feel better about management too. when you feel like they're being upfront with you. Yeah. That doesn't seem like they're hiding anything. No. All right. I'll get into the valuation ticker is uh, F I V E. So five, very easy to remember market cap right now is about 10.96 billion. So round that up to about $11 billion, price to sales 5.6, 
price to gross profit of 16.8. So a little expensive there. Uh, they're not a high margin business. So don't look at that sales ratio at all and think, whoa, under 10, cheap. You know, we're kind of in that, I don't know, part of the cycle. I don't want anyone to think that. Price to operating income when tr- looking at the trailing 2020 numbers was 70.8. Uh, but remember that 2020 is a down year for a lot of retailers like this. I think their comp sales went down like 6%, but Ryan will probably get into that. So really normalized operating income is likely a lot higher and they're still kind of in investment mode. Share count has stayed extremely steady over the last five years. So really nothing positive or negative there. They have a small buyback that's not really meaningful and then no dividend. Um, besides that, I'll just kick it over to Ryan for earnings. Yeah, so the earnings were lumpy in 2020 as almost every business has had lumpy earnings, but revenue actually increased 6% to about $2 billion. Uh, but that was despite a 5.5% decline in comp store sales. So it was basically just offset by new store openings. Um, operating income fell 30% year over year to, I think, uh, I might be blanking on the number, but it was around like $150 million, Yeah, I think it was $180 million possibly. Okay. And the, uh, but when we look at Q4, revenue was actually up 25% year over year, driven by 14% comp store sales growth. They increased store count 13% uh, over the last year. And then operating income grew 18% year over year. So strong numbers across the board in the fourth quarter. And they're planning to add another 170 to 180 stores in 2021. Uh, but normalize their operating margin is probably somewhere around 10%, uh, roughly. Um, yeah. I think that's what it was in 2019. I'll try to pull up the numbers here. But Ian, uh, you want to go ahead and hit balance sheet? Yep. We've got a pretty simple balance sheet here. They've got cash of around $410 million. Uh, no true debt, but they do have leases, which oftentimes we consider debt. Um, and that's uh, they lease out all their stores. They don't own any of the properties. And they're typically around 10-year leases with options to renew past that. So not super long-term leases. So um, a little bit of flexibility there if a location really isn't working, but their leases uh, total about $1.1 billion in liabilities. Uh, Like I said, the balance sheet looks pretty solid to me, pretty simple. One last thing I'll note is that inventory turnover is something that you should keep an eye on and management is actually generally incentivized to um, increase inventory turnover. Uh, It was actually up a bit in the last year And that was because they reduced inventory by about 10%. Um, And so they had uh, a little, a little bit more sales, but then also uh, less inventory on the books. And so they kind of ramped down inventory during COVID. I expect that um, they're trying with these distribution centers, as Ryan mentioned, the supply chain is really important. And so they're trying to find ways to uh, increase the efficiency of their inventory inventory management. And then they also implemented a new inventory management system. So they're making some efforts to try and keep that inventory number as low as possible. But balance sheet looks good. Should be plenty of capital to fund growth in the future. They're cash flow positive. So not a lot of concerns there. Yeah. fine. And their, their leases are operating leases, not finance, right? Like you said. So it's not like that debt there. Uh, I mean, they're liabilities that they will have to pay, but it's not like um, it's not the same as long-term debt. Yeah. And I, I got, I pulled up the financial statement here. Yeah. Operating margin is typically, or net margin is typically just below 10% on a normalized basis. Okay. This year it was a little lower, but that's yeah. kind of where it usually ranges to. Okay. All right. That all makes sense. Let's take a break and then we'll get back for the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. 
you'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to Advanced Security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. Next up is going to be competitive advantages for Five Below. We'll kick things off with Ian. What are your thoughts here? The competitive advantage that I'd like to look at today is that they have an established niche. So they target that tween teen demographic um, and they've done a really good job at it. So that helps them to focus their marketing, to focus the store layout, all of those types of things to that audience rather than being someplace like Target where they do sell items that are in this price point um, for this audience, but it's not laid out or set up or all those types of, there's just little things that the company can do that really helps maximize the sales that they have with their core audience. And so I think that established niche also helps them uh, choose different locations, have smaller building sizes, smaller footprints than like something like a Target, um, even something like a party city. So uh, just the between prices, goods, inventory, experience, and location, it's all catered to capturing that 5 to 19 market. Yeah. Yeah. The, as long That's as, true. yeah, as long as a kid doesn't want to go to Costco or Target and they want to go to Five Below, I think that's a, you know, that's, it's hard to describe that as like a competitive advantage, but it feels like that as long as they keep that up, that's, that'll ring true. And I, I haven't been in one, but people say it's entertaining. Like people say it's kind of fun experience for that age demographic. Whereas like the dollar store or dollars general isn't necessarily like you're going there to get really cheap stuff in a similar way to five below, but it's not like fun. Yeah. Uh, maybe this to some people. Yeah, Ian. Yeah, and I would say like the interesting thing about Five Below is I, <laughs> it was funny to me when I started researching the stock because when I walked in, maybe this just means I'm more of a tween than I realized, but I didn't, it, it seemed like a cool store to me. I was like, oh wow, look at all these great deals and I can walk around it in five minutes and just, you know, I picked up a couple of, I like never shop, but I actually enjoyed the shopping experience there, which is why I started looking at the stock because I was like, this is so bizarre to me that I actually am somewhat enjoying this, the the experience here. But part of it too, I think is, and this isn't a, you know, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but sometimes you walk into those um, dollar stores or dollar general or whatever, and it feels like it's not super clean or there's like random items all over the place. This felt really well merchandised. Like there wasn't, it was at least the ones that I've been in have been clean, they've been organized. It's been easy to see where the different sections were. You could find everything really fast and it was kind of easy to just roam about the store rather than like sometimes in those other dollar stores. It's not, like you said, it's not really a fun experience. It's a little bit, maybe a little bit messy, a little bit cluttered. Um, so anyways, just yeah, my two cents. It honestly, like when I was going through the industry, it seems like, you know, you can say like, all right, there's all these competitors in retail. There really seems like there's not any competitor. I mean, I can put on my Galaxy brain hat and say that maybe Roblox is their competitor. I know that's the hot <laughs> name that everyone talks about now, but it's really like the place where people, you know, where kids are going to interact and uh, buy things for themselves and, you know, gifts for each other. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's going to cater well into my future growth opportunity. Okay. Uh, uh, Ian, Ian, I think Ian, you got something. anything else? Yeah, I've got one last, one last thing. I think when you're looking at Five Below, and I think there's other businesses like this as well, that 
this is kind of a helpful framework, at least for me to analyze some of these businesses. So I think sometimes about who are the business model competitors and who are their target market competitors. And mm -hmm. so in this sense, we'd say like the business model competitors would be things like Dollar Tree, Dollar General, um, kind of those competitors that are really trying to find um, bargain, like, and, and you can, you can match their type of business model to build your own models about what you think five below will look like in the future. But when you're talking about capturing a market, they're not really competing against Dollar Tree or Dollar General in a, in a, for the most part, and trying to get that same audience. It's actually two different audiences, but they have similar business models in these two audiences. So um, that's kind of how I think about this business. I think there's other businesses because like, it's kind of a joke, but like you said, like even Roblox could be a little bit considered um, like a, a target market. Yeah. Um, spending money. They're spending, kids they're are spending, spending money. money. Yeah. So okay. yeah. I'm, I'm going to dive into my competitive advantage and that is basically against sort of the digital retailers, e-commerce for tiny, tiny goods, like stuff that's less than $5, especially if you're buying it, like just a singular item. Uh, the shipping and logistics, it doesn't really make practical sense, uh, the, the economics of shipping one tiny item, um, because there's so much cost that go into the back end of that. So, I mean, Amazon can afford to lose money doing that, yeah, but, they, even they Amazon, do it, but even Amazon tries to, they, I think they try to sell kind of this stuff in bulk yes, um, yes. because it's, it just really doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're pairing it with something else, Amazon has that infrastructure to ship that kind of stuff well, but like one tiny item, like shipping one mask probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so it, this is something that feels like it won't be digitized that much. This shopping experience of little one to $5 items, I think will always be done physically in person. Um, so I guess there's that niche um, or, or that advantage uh, that this is just something that's sort of immune to digital changes. Yeah, and with the e-commerce, uh, okay, Amazon is really more of a utility for like adults like us. Yeah. And Five Below, like they, they pro I haven't been on the website or actually no, I checked it out for a little bit. It's really catered for, you know, a kid's experience. Yeah. where they, they could like check it out and it's like a, probably a great way to, I don't know, send a gift to your cousin in Texas. And even I mean? the, like their e-commerce, I didn't look at the numbers, but Ian, you said it's a pretty small portion of overall sales, right? Yeah, they don't report exactly what it is, but they say it's not material at this point. Okay. Okay. And if they're saying it's not material after a yeah. pandemic, like this feels like something that's yeah. probably not going to go digital. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. For what sure. do you have? Um, I think th this one's easy. There, there's classic economies of scale. So they got they're going to get to 2,500 locations or, you know, they're guiding for 2,500 locations. They're going to end up having better negotiation, negotiating power with suppliers, either, you know, to get that accounts payable a little later or whatever that would help with cash flow. Um, they're going to be able to use that, uh, to get lower prices for their customers. And then they'll be able to stay profitable at the same time. That gives them an advantage over the the mom and pop shop. Um, it's no different than any other retailer in that instance. You could probably compare it to, you know, Walmart or Costco in that sense. But that model works so well because the advantage and the moat they can build is just really strong. I mean, I guess again, Dollar General has that as well. I, I don't know much about Dollar General, but from what I've read, it seems like they've been able to, you know, just keep prices low through their economies of scale and 
the ability to get a store up and running rather cheap. Yeah, the supply chain seems like an advantage. I mean, maybe it's not a competitive advantage, but the fact that they're able to acquire all their materials so cheap allows them to, I mean, that is their entire customer value proposition is the cheap experience that these customers get. Yeah. Ian? Yeah. And then two other quick things on that. You know, I think you also get, they like have some branding agreements, both they were doing some like stuff with Fortnite and some Fortnite gamers, I think, to do like special uh, like plush dolls of like, you know, your favorite Fortnite star or whatever. So they, they kind of are able, because they're so big, they're able to cut some of those deals with places like Fortnite, places like Disney. Um, and then the other thing that I've just started realizing a little bit more of the five below, once you have a big established, um, uh, like a uh, store footprint, like they do, or a store uh, network, like they do, they've got over a thousand stores. They get to do a little bit of the AB testing, kind of like we talk about Facebook doing a lot with as many fa- users as Facebook has. They can do all sorts of testing in all these different locate or in all their apps to all of us to you know see what works the best. Five Below can do the same thing in all these different locations and try out new, um, you know, new floor layouts, which they do from time to time. They can try out uh, like they've started selling. Um, some other goods that are a little bit more than $5 in some locations and seeing how that works. And so it gives them the ability that like a startup wouldn't necessarily have to test things out and see how it works. Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, yeah, I'll agree. Ian, do you want to hit up uh, what is next? future growth opportunities? Yep. So Ryan's been mentioning e-commerce as um, that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for five below. And I think I agree. Um, However, they they do mention it from time to time, and they say, you know, the, or the CEO is the former CEO of Walmart.com, presumably has some uh, some affinity for e-commerce. He said, "quote Our e-commerce business continues to grow at a pace significantly faster than our stores. However, due to the small base, the overwhelming majority of our sales still come from our stores." Close quote. So I'm not sure exactly what I think of this. I don't know. I don't know how much growth is there. I agree with a lot of the points you were making, Ryan, that I don't think that this is probably geared towards e-commerce, but I do start thinking about some of that, especially as they grow out more and more stores, some of that omni-channel kind of method where you might be able, you know, they could even put out lockers outside their stores and say, hey, build this, you know, make an order and then come pick it up at our store just to get a little bit of some incremental sales. But what were you going to say, Ryan? Yeah, and I think they just, signed a partnership with Instacart as well. But the, true, yeah. the, the, I think that uh, that Fortnite sort of angle, when you take it from your maybe just becoming the logistics infrastructure for vendors could present some good stuff in terms of e-commerce. So if you're buying a plush doll or whatever of a Fortnite character after, I mean, they just signed, this goes into my future growth opportunity, but they just signed some deal with Gouda or Buddha or uh, he's like a popular, he won the Fortnite world cup in 2019. Wow. So he's like this big sort of character in esports. Um, so if you're doing stuff that way and you can kind of just, maybe people don't know it as a five below item, but they're powering that back end. that, that could be a big sort of tailwind for the e-commerce side. And then my growth opportunity was esports. So they made an investment in a company called nerd street gamers which is uh, it's a Philadelphia esports network. So they host events, tournaments, that kind of thing. Um, and in the fourth quarter, Five Below opened three local host to- test centers. So, and they're basically just, they're adjacent to a Five Below store. So they go right next to it. And then 
Localhost is a training center for gamers, which it seems like a strange narrative to go that way, but becoming synonymous with gaming might help on the e-commerce angle. Yeah, it's there's a lot of factors going into the e-commerce market for them because they have to weigh the fact that a lot of their items, you know, five below, it's going to be really cheap. But it seems like there's some opportunities there, but it's not going to be as streamlined of a process as like, all right, we're just going to keep opening stores, keep yeah. this model going. There's a, there's a lot of variables at play. What, what do you guys think about the esports angle? Because it seems so, random. No, I think it's smart because it's huge for that age group, and the fact uh. that you can come into I don't know what these partnerships are. Honestly, I didn't look, but uh, any sort of esports partnership, I know that my younger cousins love watching Twitch. So yeah. I, I think that market, the market overlap seems strong. Ian, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think just exactly what you were saying. They talk about being, quote, trend right and really trying to just be with the times. And that's so important for that tween teen demographic is that you're with the times. You don't want to be last year's stuff. You don't want to be, you know, <laughs> you, you don't yeah. want to be boring anymore. You don't want to be out of out of style. So I think for now they're making those investments in esports. And um will it last? Who knows? It depends on how big esports will continue. But I I trust the management team to continue to uh invest in things when it looks uh profitable and and uh pivot when when it starts going out of style. Yeah, this is the interesting part about their businesses. They're gonna have people graduate from their target demographic, but they hopefully are going to have new people entering each year. Uh, but the only downside with that is that, yeah, you have to adapt with the times. Um, I'll hit my future growth opportunity. I'll, I'm stealing the easy one. Plenty of room for store growth. They have about a thousand right now. They're opening over a hundred each year. And if they can get to 2,500 stores and keep up some solid comp store growth, I mean, there seems like an easy, not easy path, but you could see, you know, $8 billion in sales. I mean, that's a lot higher than now, but you know, some by 2030, the model is so predictable that if, unless there's a huge change in either the culture or I don't know, if someone comes up with some innovative thing in e-commerce, there's, a hard reason to think why they wouldn't be able to get 2,500 stores out there. And at that point, maybe they could get their margins up to, I don't know, 12% instead of 10% now. I know that doesn't yeah. seem like much, but at that point, you could be pushing close to a billion dollars in income. I, I don't know. I'm just, that's, that's pretty speculative. That's a lot far out, but there seems to be a clear path to store growth. Yeah. And 2,500... It doesn't have to stop there. Like if they see yes, expansion, yeah. it could go beyond twenty five hundred. That's just what their their minimum goal or target is. Yeah, it's kind of their target. Uh, what would that be? It's probably by sometime like twenty thirty, maybe. At this pace, probably yeah. before that. Before that, with they're what, going 100? what one hundred eighty stores this year. Yeah, I mean, but they that's, got, yeah. That's it. Seven or eight years. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, highlights and lowlights. Ian, you want to go first? Yeah, mine kind of go right right in line with what uh, Brett was saying. Simple model, you know, currently with just about a thousand stores growing to 2,500, it, it there's just you see the path, right? It's easy to see where this thing is going as long as things stay on track. Um, and then on the margin point, too, he, they've talked a little bit recently that this is going to cause like adding all these stores is going to densify the model, meaning that there's going to be more stores in each city, there's going to be more stores in each state, which creates a little bit of cannibalization. They're seeing about 1% of sales when they build a new store. Um, sales at surrounding stores drop by about 1%, but 
the additional sales more than make up for that and the additional uh, brand recognition more than make up for that. And so the other piece of densification though that they like is that it increases the margins at these stores because people are, they're spending less on marketing. They're spending less um, on like on distribution because they've got more stores that are close to each other. And so their supply chain becomes more efficient. And so it just, it seems like this is going in the right direction and the model is going to get more efficient as it gets more mature. So it's kind of, it's kind of that double whammy there that's, that I like to see. Um, I will say uh, as far as low lights, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to see some low lights, but one of them would be inconsistent, inconsistent comp sales growth. They have been growing comp sales every year until this year, but um, it's not super linear. Uh, Some of it, sometimes uh, the comp sales go up because the average ticket goes up. Sometimes it's the amount of transactions. Sometimes one of those two factors actually goes down. So they don't seem to have a clear strategy about driving more tickets or the size of the ticket. So uh, that's, that's, that's the one low light I will point out. Yeah. To be honest, I was having trouble finding, <laughs> finding low lights too. Uh, I think the business model is, I want to say bulletproof, but pretty, pretty darn sound. Ryan, you want to hear yours? Yeah. My highlight is the, the, the strong economics of the business model profitable after a year or whatever. That's the payback period, which when you're profitable that quick, it allows you to expand a little bit faster because you can generate, you can do it, uh, organically with the cash flow that you have, uh, and not require outside debt. Um, but low light for me, uh, the share repurchase felt really random and unwarranted. It was tiny, but it was like a hundred million dollars over the next four years, which yeah. just felt like wasted cap. I mean, they're not cheap. They're not like some, a screaming. Yeah. Let's get some CapEx going. Yeah. Just like, uh, why not just speed up store count, I guess, with that hundred million. I don't think um, they actually bought anything yet. So maybe it's just out there in case they're price plummets it felt like a shareholder tease like (laughs) we could if we wanted to you know (laughs) with a model like this it honestly feels like once they get to scale the ideal situation is someone like autozone where they destroy 80 percent of their shares over the you know once they hit kind of the saturation you know like autozone really didn't have or i think it's autozone right I think yeah, it, yeah, I think whatever company it is, and there's other examples where they kind of hit market saturation, which Five Below is going to do eventually with their current model. If the the valuation stays like low, right now it's a bit high, right? If it stays fairly low, you just buy back a ton of your shares. But that but that's, uh, that seems way into. That's my now. worry is that there it feels like there's a ceiling. It it feels like all right, let's say 2,500 is that threshold of store count. You could see them easily getting there. That's great. You know, some of that might be priced in, but then what do you do? Raise prices? Like your store is built on not raising prices. That's the whole narrative. I guess, Ian, do you have a point to that? Yeah. Just the only point is then you start thinking about international, you know, that's the, that's always what, you know, management teams say, and it's a little bit cliche, but I think for five below, um, once they started to tap out or get got close to tapping out in in the U.S., they'd say, "Hey, let's go, let's go check out the international thing." So yeah, and there's some countries that this type of like, well, in general, some countries seem to hate chain stores, but there's plenty out there that that kind of you know like chains. And I would think this model would work anywhere. Um, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't the, thing know is, the other demographics as well. But, but the, yeah. yeah, I guess you gotta really cater to the you know, each culture is different. So yeah. What are, what about you highlights? Um, I mean, the predictability is probably my favorite part. It's, it's so simple, but 
it's like, again, like I said, it's almost bulletproof. Stores are profitable with, a, with any year. I think that was one of our, each of us had that. Um, and that gives them the opportunity to spend about 200 million on CapEx each year while staying free cash flow positive. That is a great advantage. And I do love the defensibility versus Amazon or Walmart. You know, like there's not really, Amazon can't invest $5 billion and crush them. It's really not going to happen. Low lights though, again, the market saturation thing, uh, I the comp sales, again, were a bit of a worry, but those are a bit of a stretch. Does I don't know if this one is real, but does inflation hurt them at all? Ian, you seem to know the business a bit more. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that no, consistent? it's just a name change. Six below. Six below, <laughs> seven below. They, I know they have the five beyonds, but they're, they can't make that the entire store. Yeah, I suspect what we'll start to see over the next few years is... Um, I, you know, they do seem to be pretty creative with their names. So they may come up with a new name and, and uh, be able to up their prices a little bit. But I do expect that maybe it'll be a slow transition, but we might start seeing more and more five beyond goods and less and less five below goods. Um, and that they may even be looking at that as the, the, the name of the future, but we'll see. I don't know. I think, I think it's a little bit of a concern because they have built their brand so much around five below quality, um, quality inexpensive goods but uh i i assume that they'll fit that they've got some sort of plan for that five below in parentheses inflation adjusted inflation yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly all right uh i think that's gonna do it no more or less oh, yeah. interested uh, well first of all it's the one year anniversary of the market bottom today so yeah i was looking at their one year returns and i was like wow 100 percent. i was like oh it was like $60 a year ago. I think right now it's at 192. Yeah. I mean, every every I mean, one year chart looks incredible right now. Yeah. Uh, this but is one, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. As I say, more or less interested in. Yeah. This is one that I, I took a look at back last summer and it's one I'm kicking myself a little bit for not getting any of because like you said, the one year chart looks amazing, but um, I'd say I, every time I look at this business, I get a little bit more interested just because of how, good, simple, predictable, it seems. And, um, you know, you can never like, it's hard to discount that, right. To say what, just a, a good solid company, right. And yeah. that's, that's at a fairly reasonable valuation comparatively, right. We could argue about valuation all day long, but compared to a lot of the things in this market, this does not have a crazy multiple on it right now. So, um, I'd say I'm, I'm slightly more interested. All right, Ryan. Yeah, normal. I mean, it's. I'm less interested. I know this is uh, kind of against. Wow, haters. I know. I don't know. It doesn't get me super excited, and this feels like. I mean, normalized. It's trading on operating income multiple, probably yeah, like, like fifty. Yeah, forty maybe. But yeah, it, that isn't. Uh, I know that's cheaper than comps, but. Uh, I guess this is the kind of business that I'd like to own if it were uh, screaming my name. Right now, it just doesn't excite me. And I don't. something just feels daunting about the fact that they've kind of capped themselves out, it, whether it's the 2,500 2, stores, the $5 price limit. I know that isn't really a threshold, but it feels like they're going to have to sort of contrast against their narrative in order to raise prices or do more $5 plus stuff or they're going to have to expand internationally. But I don't know. It just feels like I always hate investing with a cap, like a theoretical yeah. cap. 
Yeah, and a good management team might surprise you, but yeah, that is definitely a concern here. I mean, um, the esports, I guess, provides some nah. optionality, but <laughs> it feels like if you're talking about optionality with this business, it's kind of you're reaching, just trying to justify the the current valuation. Yeah, I mean, valuation is a concern for me as well, um, but I do think the business is. I mean, it's sounds bulletproof. I've said it like three times. It's but, it's just so simple so predictable but it's just got it's not i'm more interested but the business is something that i feel like it's gonna be on my watch list forever um at 40 times normalized earnings so yeah would i be yeah. surprised if it outperforms the market no but uh, i let mean me, i don't know let me pose this question what multiple do you think this would trade at at maturity at maturity i don't know 25 25 it would get a 25. definitely get a decently premium multiple a little you know, bit above a little bit above market average. Yeah. If I'm saying the long-term market average is like 20, I'd say this is probably deserves like 25. So the that's I guess my concern is let's say it's 25 times or even 30 times. And right now we're all saying it's a very predictable business. That's why it trades at 40 times, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, I guess right now it trades at like 70 times trailing, but the trailing numbers are uh, off because of COVID. I guess that predictability it feels like a maybe that's what the market's pricing in. Oh, yeah, sure. I think it's the type of thing that you, if you're looking at this a year ago, it's much more, and I was, and I didn't see it at the time, but it's a much more attractive thing. And I think this is, you know, at least for me, this is that type of stock that I try and keep on my watch list. And if something like COVID happens again, that, um, you know, where it just has this huge drop and you think, okay, maybe, maybe time to pull the trigger on this one because it's, it's, uh, you're going to get some outsized returns over the next few years. But like you were saying, Brett, I would expect, you know, this thing, it, it wouldn't surprise me if this thing was a 10 to 15% compounder for the next yeah. five to 10 years, but it's probably not going to be the thing that's going to, it's not these micro cap picks that are going up hundred percent in three months, right? It's not that type of return or even hundred percent in two years. It would surprise me if it doubled again from here in the next two years. So. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that would concern investors is just boredom with this business. <laughs> I think you would just get bored. And I guess I, I, most people I think do. I mean, Ian brings up a good point there. Like maybe you're paying a little bit of a premium now, but the fork forecasting of the business uh, or of the fundamentals from here is pretty easy. Yeah, uh, 10% margins at least. You know. So it makes buying on downturns a lot easier as well. Yes, for sure. All right. We're going to wrap things up. I yeah, got what stock pick. do you have for next week? Yeah, I think you guys are going to like this one. It's going to play off with a fashion thing I did three weeks ago. We're going to do Farfetch. Uh, that's, okay. I don't know what the business is at all, but a lot of people seem to like it. They're throwing out 80% revenue growth. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's just take it out. It's, uh, yeah. Got to love top line growth. Yes. Yeah. And everybody knows we're the fashion experts. So, you know, that's the, the most fashionable people on FinTwit, right? That's that's what people call us, right? That's yeah, exactly that's right. right. Value investors are known for their fashion. Buffett is basically... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. But right. uh, that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, for Ian, for joining us. Remember, we are not financial advisors, so anything on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital, and clients in Arch Capital may hold securities discussed on this podcast. Am I missing anything? Thank no. you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time.